guys. Welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and this podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is another beautiful day for an interview. I love it. I love it, love it, love it. Because I can get to, to connect with all these wonderful people out there in the world. And I must say, this is, this is something I am very proud to say I'm addicted of, to make connection with wonderful people. And today is no exception. And I was looking forward to this interview. I've got Brent Scalpel with me. Uh, Brent is a man with many abilities. Um, but he is a man who... who in his own right, he has taken the bull by its horns. He actually managed to gel the two passions in his life, the film industry and uh, teaching others and, and helping others to grow so that the life coaching uh, into and gel that and make that one cohesive thing because there are so many lessons to learn out there. And after all, uh, the film industry is so beautiful because it allows us to escape. It allows us to take on in our mind these kind of new alter uh, personas, different different people. We can be Spider Man. We can be. We can cry when in your real life you don't dare to cry. Those kind of things. So it's it's actually wonderful. So I want to hear from Brent you today on my show. How was life, uh, or how is life in the film industry? and talk about those beautiful, beautiful products that you have worked on. So, Brent Scapel, welcome to my show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so, uh, I'm so grateful. Welcome, and uh, thank you for having me on your show as well as in, uh, in New Zealand. Uh, it's one of my, it's, uh, New Zealand is one of my bucket list countries to go visit because I've heard so many wonderful things. Mm, and it is, it is. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it is. Man, you come, uh, I'll guide you around. You have got a free trip. You have got... The, the behind the scenes look I organized for you, okay? I cannot wait. I will take you up on that offer. I would be delighted. <laughs> Brent, you have been working on wonderful, wonderful projects such as Shawshank Redemption, such as Matilda, uh, names that, that really a lot of people recognize regardless of their own age, regardless of where they are in the world. So these are some of the, the really beautiful, beautiful uh, legacies that someone has left. But I mean, how did it all start? How the hell did you stumble into the film industry? How was, what was your start? It's, it's a great, um, so I, I didn't, you know, long before Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now and Living in the Present Moment and so on and so forth, I think as a young child, I, I was born into living in the present moment um, and just didn't know that that's what they called it. And so for me, um, I live as I lived as presently as I possibly could. I'm an intuitive life coach. So I, I knew at a very early age that I had these abilities to be able to, you know, see things in the future, um, know things about people that, you know, ordinary people may not know. Um, and it, it just, it just allowed me to be very grounded. So at seven, I knew, I knew that I loved the entertainment industry, you know, that was, uh, exacerbated by, you know, television and so on and so forth. But there was just something amazing about, well, to your point, how you started out your, your wonderful podcast, just the, your passion, your love for meeting people and different people and unique people. And to me, that's what the entertainment industry allowed me to do. It's like, whether it was a TV show or a movie or even a 
a commercial, you know, you, you get the essence of someone or something based on a writer and a director and a producer. So at seven, I just went to my mother. I said, you know, uh, I'm going to be an actor. And she's like, okay. <laughs> so I literally shaped my life since I was seven because I was raised, uh, born in California, but I was raised in Pennsylvania to your point, because my, uh, as I've said to many, many because, uh, as you know, I, I was a speaker for many, many years and continued to, to do so. But I was in the college circuit and I had a um, drug and alcohol program that I did. And I'd always start out the program the same way. When I was four years old, my father made a decision. He decided whether to love me or whether to love alcohol. And my father decided to love alcohol more than me. And he left. And so for me, you know, the concept of choices, the concept of of being in the moment. And I knew at seven when we had to leave our beautiful home in California and come to Warren, Pennsylvania, where, you know, the sheep outweigh the number of people as far as population is concerned, you know, that there was something significant happening. So um, my mother told me I was from California. That's where movies are made. And I looked at her at seven. I said, great, I'm going there. So uh, I fashioned my life based on that from seven years old. Um, to the point where when my mother wanted me to go to uh, college, to university, I said no. Uh, and we got into a rather large row about that because um, my passion was to go to California and study at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Yeah. But as in life, you have to have um, conversations and you have to have compromise. So I ended up getting a degree in English literature communication uh, at a school on the East Coast. Went to California right afterwards, studied at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. You know, had a good seven, eight, nine, ten years, you know, paying my dues, you know, getting an agent, doing commercials, doing some bit parts in TV and, and movies and all that good cruise ships and children's theater. And then uh, uh, a friend of mine just asked me, uh, a casting director friend, if I'd be interested in actually being an assistant casting director, which I said, no. I was like, I'm so not interested in that. You need to hire me so I can pay rent is basically what I told her. And she said, no, no, I think you'd be really good. You know, and I was like, I'm not interested. And she called me twice, you know, to ask me to be her assistant. I said, no, you know, and, um, you know, I was working in the world of education to supplement my acting income. So I was working in high schools and middle schools and colleges and universities, um, either teaching assistant or teaching classes, which I love. That was the, that was my other you know passion. I just love working with kids. So uh, finally she called me a third time and she's like, look, I really need an assistant. And she started to cry. So I'll let you know that if you ever want anything from me, if you start to cry, I pretty much will give you whatever you want. Um, and so I was like, oh, I said, why are you crying? She said, well, I just got these two films. One's called Ed with with Johnny Depp and another one's called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. And I can't sign a contract unless they bring the assistant, uh, unless they bring the assistant with me. I was like, oh, I said, OK, tell me a little bit more about these films. So Johnny Depp, obviously, um, Ed Wood, that was shooting in L.A. And then this other one was based on a Stephen King novella called Different Seasons. It was shooting in Ohio. I thought it was the stupidest title I'd ever heard in my entire life. And uh, I said, well, how much, what, what would I get paid? She told me. And I was like, you should have started the conversation with that two conversations ago. It was like an insane amount of money. I'm like, what do you, do? you need it? So I said, yes. You know, again, being in the moment, uh, allowing myself to not block myself in terms of because I was saying no to something that 
was a huge opportunity. Um, and so I all of a sudden found myself being behind the camera. Um, I was the assistant to uh, the background under five casting directors. So um, Deborah Quilla, she cast, um, you know, the main parts, but all those prisoners, all those guards, all the people that had 10 lines or under, we cast because we didn't get a huge budget because Frank Darabont had never directed a film in his entire life. And rumor has it that uh, they wanted to direct Castle Rock and he had three separate meetings with them and turned away an insane, like a hundred times more insane than my, my, my salary amount of money just to keep directorial uh, rights. And normally that doesn't work in Hollywood. And uh, they love the film so much they went ahead and they gave him directorial rights. But they didn't give us a lot of money. They gave us $25 million and we had to get an A-list star. So I, you know, did it. It was a moment. I One of the top three summers of my life. Afterwards, I was hooked. So then I opened up my own casting company and, you know, worked on Air Force One, that thing you do, Matilda, did TV commercials for good four, for probably about a good four or five years. Casting director, <laughs> that's our assistant casting director in this case. You would not think that this is actually uh, such a, such an, such a revealing and, and uh, giving job, but ultimately it is... Uh, you are meeting people and you are seeing them transforming in front of you. And that can be a quite a powerful lesson. Um, I've got two young boys, so, uh, well, no longer young, they're 19 and 21 now. Um, but for a while we went to Armageddon. And uh, the, so like Comic-Con in the United States, smaller version mm -hmm. here in New Zealand. And uh, one of the things that I always appreciated most, apart from, spending money and time with my boys was to actually listen to the actors that were coming across and were, were talking and sharing parts of their lives, giving us glimpses into their lives. And it was beautiful to see the, the people behind the roles, to see the, the, the true people. How does a, a really nice guy transform into an arch villain? Things like that. So you actually saw people in the raw You saw them coming in, probably sweating a little bit of uh, uh, doing their own Rick Morrell, getting them right for that 10 seconds where they have to prove that, that this is, that they are the right people for the, the right job. So there is a lot of, of uh, things that you can gleam from such transformations. Did that intrigue you at the time? I know you're all now into transformations with, with being a life coach, but was that, um, but how was it actually to, to work in the casting role? Was that, was that something you cherished? Yeah, I think uh, whenever you find those dimensions and those layers of your life, right? And I always say life is like an onion, you know, we're constantly peeling it back to discover the essence of who we are. And I'd rather doubt that we'll ever get to the center. Or if we do, that's when we make our <laughs> ultimate transition. That's into heaven or whatever particular belief system you have. But um, no, I think it's just fascinating, uh, especially with Shawshank, because that was beyond transformative. I mean, as I shared with you, you know, prior to our podcast, I've decided to, um, uh, I have a book that's going to come out uh, in May of 2022 called The Red Balloon. But then I've watched Shawshank uh, so many times. I've, you know, been to premieres. Uh, 
two years ago, you know, we all gathered together in Mansfield, Ohio after 25 years and celebrated the 25th anniversary. So just to see the transformation of the actors from when they started to now and just how this movie has changed their life specifically financially was crazy. But, you know, if you remember the film, uh, and, and there's a lot of behind scenes that people just never see, which is why I think it's just time for this book. Um, my role was I was specifically given the job to try to find as many guards, as many prisoners as possible, which we had over 3000. I mean, that's the basis of that film. And so I went into every strip club bar, biker place. I mean, this little boy from California was going to places I had never been into in my entire life. And I was looking for every ruffian, you know. And so talk about being uh, open to meeting different people, places and things and personalities. And, and then I've got to sit there and convince these guys to be in a movie. You, you, are you kidding me? So it was just a uh, transformative just in that and we would have these you know massive calls of you know 500 600 people on different days in a big um auditorium and you know it's not often that a you know a major film comes into a tiny town like Mansfield, ohio one of there's two reasons why we chose that too one uh it had an abandoned prison uh, the uh, reformatory had been there since the late, since the 1800s and literally had just closed two years before, which was, that was spooky in of itself. And they had a brand new prison that was gorgeous. It also had a, unfortunately 11% unemployment rate. And so we needed people for at least four or five months. Well, we cast and, and again, guys with tattoos and beards and hair down to their butt. And, the, you know, it was, it was wonderful. And, but I, you know, this is my first, you know, John in the casting part, I always was the actor that showed up, met the casting director. I would transform into my character. I would cry. I would, you know, be the rapist or whatever and hope that I get the job. So now it's much different. I'm looking at, and it's really good too, because people really loved working with me because I was an actor's actor. I was a casting director who understood actors because I started out as an actor. So I remember a pivotal moment during the process because we had about six weeks to cast prior to the beginning of principal photography. So we have, we have, you know, thousands of people, we've got the different scenes, we, you know, the shooting schedule. And, um, I remember my, my supervisor, she said, she's like, we're probably in big trouble. I was like, why? And so she showed, she handed me this book. In if you know Shawshank, it's a period piece that goes from 1945 to 1976, right? And so R&D, every movie's got a research person, gives us the Maine Penitentiary, because it's based in Maine's handbook from 1946. And in it are pictures of how the prisoners and the guards need to look because back in that day, every Friday in the main penitentiary, every guard and every prisoner had to get a haircut. Now, do you remember your father and what he looked like in 1945? And I went, <gasps> oh, no. And we had to have a meeting with all 3,000 guys. We made massive posters of what a 1945 haircut looked like. Similar, a little bit to right right and i went oh my god they'll they'll never they will never clean you got to be clean shaven no facial hair 1945 haircut 
And I remember just sitting there, we brought them all in saying, we're having a meeting. We're start, we said, we're going to start casting parts. So it was packed. And we had different uh, posters all around the room and we, we put covers on them. And I was like, it's going to be a mass exodus. It's going to be a mass exodus. We're screwed. So we're like, so, you know, we're so excited you're here and we're, we're going to start looking at specific roles for people. And Oh, by the way, this film's called a period piece. Anybody know what a period piece is? <laughs> and people are like a period piece. I was like, I was like, Oh, this is like, so I went and I took all the little bales off the posters, which were giant. They said, well, this is a period piece that starts in 1945 and goes to 1976. So what we're going to do for each of you, because you always raise the positive, is we've hired 10 barbers, which we did, in the city of Mansfield. And every Friday, we're going to give you vouchers. And every Friday, you're going to get a haircut like one of the ones that you see up here. Because it is a period piece. And if you want to get paid and be in this film we have to have this kind of look. And I was like, I was waiting. And people were like, like they were trying, you could see when they were trying to put it together, like the guys with the long hair and the beers down to their belly and the whole thing. And so then the questions came, it's like, so we have to look like that? And we're like, yes, you do. Yes, you do. And they're like, well, who's going to pay for that? And it's like, well, we're going to give you vouchers. And then every Friday you show up at any one of the 10 barbers. And, you know, it, it was about 15 minutes of like, you know, confusion because they're not used to this. Right. Yeah. And then it was like, so what happens if we don't do this? Right. And, and she, my, my supervisor, she's like, you can't be in our film because it is a period piece. And we unfortunately we can't use you. I think out of 3000 people, memory serves me correctly. I think we lost about um, probably between 50 to a hundred. Right. And I was shocked that the rest stayed. Right. And so we're like, okay, so we went through the process. The When you shoot a film, you don't do it in order. It's always shot out of order. So the first day of principal photography is when Andy Dufresne's character is on the bus with the new fish and comes to the prison and is processed and meets uh, um, Sergeant Hadley and that scene. And I hadn't seen the guys and I, you know, developed a pretty good relationship and we had picked those, I think it was 12 guys to be on the bus with the Tim Robbins characters. So they were going to get major, major movie time. And I'll never forget because we started at three o'clock in the morning to get them dressed because now they have to be in 1945 prison garb. So we have to dress 3000 men starting at three in the morning. Uh, and we, didn't get the first shot off till about one o'clock that afternoon. But I remember when we got the guys and they're, you know, the ones that we, the director had picked to sit with Tim Robbins' character. And I didn't recognize anybody. I mean, transformation. I, they're like, I was like, who? And they're like, Brent, this is Ziggy. And I'm like, Oh my God. I said, Ziggy. He said, yeah. I said, no, it's not. He said, yes, it is. Now, Ziggy had a very distinct character because I asked the guys, you know, you know, what have you, what have you done? Here are the things that we're looking at. You need, who knows how to tar a roof? Who knows how to work the laundry mats in the prison? Who knows all this stuff? Oh, I do, I do, I do, I do. Great. I said, how many people have tattoos? Where are they located? All that. So Ziggy, he was funny. He came up to me. He was like, I got a tattoo. I was like, oh, okay. And I couldn't see. He goes, show me. He was like this. Right. And it said, F you. And I was like, oh, 
okay. So when I saw him and his hair was down to, and right, he was 1945, right? And I said, Ziggy? He said, yeah. I said, no. He goes, I said, oh my God. Thanks. Right? So we ended up doing the scene and I had an office in the basement uh, a couple miles away from the uh, prison where we shot at. Back then in 1993, you know, you had voice operated, you know, message systems. Uh, so my message machine was blinking, blinking, blinking. I was like, oh, God, what's going on? Right. So I push it. And this is what I hear. Oh, no, it was the next day. So we shoot that day. The next day I stay in the office and uh, uh, or I, I got back to the office and I had all these messages. And so I'm pushing the button to hear the messages. And this is and we're in Mansfield, Ohio. Is this Brand Scarpo? Listen, my name is uh, uh, Wanda uh, uh, Dell. Uh, my, my son, Billy, is on that. Look, you can keep him on that film as long as you like. We have never seen him look so good, so well-behaved, so nice. This is just a miracle. Be, is this this Shawshank film? My name is Donna. Look, my husband, Will, he's on that film. He, I'm telling you, he never looks so good, smells so good. He actually bought me flowers and brought me... I must have had over a dozen <laughs> grandmas, moms, wives, girlfriends saying, oh, my God. They I've got goosebumps, man. They just, I mean, <laughs> to your point in your question, it's amazing when we have significant shifts in what we believe we are versus who we can be and how the world around us reacts to it. Women, I was the saint in Mansfield, Ohio. They're like... Their, their husbands had just transformed, you know, and when they saw, you know, who they could become yeah. when they turned into that character, you know, because the character really comes um, from the essence of the gold that's inside of us. We call that the vein of gold, mm. uh, a great book that, that talked about that, that any actor that um, acts has to find that vein of gold of authenticity within themselves in order for that character to emerge. And so it was, it was amazing. It was four months where, you know, just for them to see their self-worth, self-esteem, self-confidence emerge through a costume, through a haircut, through grooming skills, through sitting next to Morgan Freeman in a scene. Which is a magical experience. Oh, how beautiful is that? But it just shows, it just shows the power that simple acts can, can entail if, if, you, if you believe in it. If you, sometimes it is so easy to stay in your rut, even if the rut is highly, highly, highly painful and toxic. Um, you still, you, you're uncertain should you go, should you, should you change? There's always the, Hey, at least I'm consistent. I know the devil, uh, who I know kind of thing. Here right. you are, you have taken them out of their comfort zone. You encourage them to role play in this case. And they choose, they, they chose to follow the money because that was probably the, the main thing or the, the I interest. think so. I think yeah. so. Yeah, absolutely. But then, uh, the flow on effects of that, it's just amazing. Um, well, so many of them, you know, to, to um, you know, one of the people I, I enjoy reading is Les Brown. And I think so often he's got this great quote that what I experience is them living their fears and not their dreams. 
right? So much of their life was living their fear. I'm in the bar. I'm in a strip club. I'm not very kind to my mother or my girlfriend or my wife or my Mm -hmm. kids. And then I come in Hollywood, right? And I said, well, by the way, I'm going to give you an opportunity to live a dream. Right. So, so many of them, I, I often now retrospectively as a life coach, because I wasn't back then, look back at that experience and go, wow, no one gave them the opportunity or they never felt as if they could live the dream. And so much of their energy was spent on living in fear. How beautiful. And you see that there is nowadays there are a lot of social experiments out there on YouTube where, for example, barbers go to the homeless and and for free um, do a haircut or a complete makeover. And it's yes. just uh, blowing your mind, the transformation. Yeah, I just saw it here. I saw that in the news last night. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm in Nevada just kind of hanging out for a little bit for the Thanksgiving vacation. I was watching the news and there's a guy in Vegas and that, that everything you just said is what he did. They interviewed him. He does it completely free of charge. He goes into the, to the, you know, the harshest neighborhoods of, of Las Vegas and he uh, does an entire makeover for the homeless. And then he, the, the homeless interviewed, you know, uh, or interviewed afterwards. So you're absolutely, and it always starts with, you know, it always starts with planting a seed. You know, if you, I always say to my, my clients, you know, it's not about the end result. It's about taking the first stop towards first step Absolutely. towards the end result. Absolutely. And yeah. this is giving yourself the freedom, giving yourself the permission to actually change. And yeah, to well, change. step one, hmm. that's step one, as we well know. Yeah. <laughs> It's the hardest one. It's the very hardest oh, one. Yeah. It's, hard. it's just like, you know, if everyone goes, oh, you know, it's the 12 and 11. Let me just do four. I'm like, yeah, but you got to kind of do one first. To do, well, and to your point, that's why those 50 to 100 people left. They're like, no, I'm not willing to change. I don't care how much money it is. I'm going to live in fear. I'm going to live with the concept of who it is that I am, despite the fact that, you know, 600 people were moving to Mansfield, Ohio, celebrities and so on and so forth. And I mean, we transformed that town. I mean, we dumped $26 million into that town and I've visited it ever since. And it's extraordinary just the transformation of our presence for four months there, how it transformed uh, that town. Oh, beautiful. Oh, beautiful. And it just shows that that, um, if you can if you can actually model a new life and make it palpable, visible, touchable for people, they suddenly say, huh, well, if they can do it, maybe I can do it. And I, that, yeah. I guess that's, that's why I have you on my show. That's why I, I make myself so transparent and so open because yeah, I am, I am an alcoholic. I lived in a, in a, in, in not nice circumstances when it comes to my own mental health, depression, anxiety, PTSD, very, very good friends of mine. Yet on the outside, you know, it is, uh, I tried to keep the facade up, uh, probably not so well, but, you know, I was a high functioning alcoholic. Oh, for fuck's sake. No, let's, let's, let's throw that all out. And let's actually show that you can live such a different life, that you can go out there and actually transform. And that it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to just shut up and, 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 and suffer in silence and not ask for help. That's, that's, no, no. And your story shows that so beautiful. Go out there and, and actually, what could possibly go wrong in trying change if you have decided actually 
this is the person who I want to be and what would that entail? In this case, covering up your tattoos and actually having a haircut. It's really not right. so much, is it? If you think about it. Right. But, On the outside, it's not. But then uh, when, look, all of us, uh, my mother used to say, the most constant entity in the world is change. Right? <laughs> most sure. constant entity in the world is change. Right. And how we relate and adapt to that defines our human existence and our human presence. Right. And so that's why, I mean, so much, you know, my book is about my relationship with her and all the wisdom that she, she taught me. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, tomorrow is going to be different than today. Five minutes from now is going to be different from this moment in time. A week from now, is there's nothing we can do about it, right? So we can either fight the system, right? Which is why the 50 to 100 people walked out. They're like, nope, I'm not changing. Thank you very much for playing. No matter what my higher power has brought to me in terms of this opportunity, where others said, you know, because I saw people's faces, they were like, oh, you know, I, I don't know, you know, kind of deal. And then, you know, that's that bit. So you've got the three groups. You got the one group that's just up and left, right? Not changing. Thank you very much. I'm not even going to face the fear. I'm going to hold on to the old uh, paradigm of who it is that I am. Then there was that group that was like, oh, can I ask one more question? I was like, yeah. So how much are we getting paid? <laughs> exactly. And I was like, well, this is, how long are we going to work? And like, well, we don't know exactly until you get the parts, right? And then so what they're doing is they're facing fears. They're processing it. They're looking at the opportunity that's just been shown to them versus ignoring it altogether with that first group. It's funny. I've never looked at it this way until now. right? And then there was a group like, yeah, just sign me up. I don't give a shit. You know, just go ahead, cut off my head, strip me naked, do whatever you want. Just as long as I get paid, I'm good. I'm good. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> no, amazing, amazing. I mean, here you are. And that's see, life. That's no, life. Right? So Isn't true. that life? So true. And yeah. nowadays I am. Up. Oh, nowadays I embrace it. Nowadays I I cherish change. I cherish uh, that. Yes. But um, yeah. it would be nice if life actually decided to give me just a little bit of break in between. Not just a new change with some crap happening every six hours. It's 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 just getting a bit, you know. What? But no, coming back to you. You, you are my guest. No, I'm not. This is no monologue here from no, me. It's you and I together. Uh, true, true, true. But I mean, here you are as a as a uh, the person responsible to actually make such a huge project come together. Because without you casting, without you actually bringing those people in time together, having them ready, being there at three o'clock in the morning, and that whole thing with a huge production pressure. Every film is production pressure. There are, there is no much fat in between which you can cut away. But there's a bit of a of a funny fudge factor. Oh, it's, it doesn't matter if it starts at three or at five. Nah. So how did you deal with the pressures? I mean, what was your recipe there? Because these pressures, it's it's it must be to a degree hours of boredom and many moments of terror. Um, that's how they describe anesthesia, which is my profession. Um, so how, how did you deal with the pressure of having to be there then at your best, more or less at all times? That's a great, I, I, you know, I applaud, I, I, I've done thousands of interviews in my life, you know, just, uh, I really have. And, you know, I appreciate that question only because it's, it, I rarely get it because I, I, I've had it, but not quite in the, in the way that you just presented it. So it's a, I applaud you on the question because when people give me a question that I, I'm like, Oh, never, 
didn't have that one. That's good. Um, you know, it's here's how I'll answer it. I mean, I was, let me think here now. I think it was in my early 30s when that was happening, right? Now I'm in my 50s. And so at that time, um, well, in my own, because I have a life coach, I've had life coaches, I practice what I preach. So at that time, that worked for me because I was addicted to chaos, right? And if you really want work in an environment that's completely chaotic, work on a film set. (laughs) I mean- it's crazy. And, but, um, cause when you first asked me the question, I'm like, that wasn't pressure. That was fun. <laughs> it's like, you know, I mean, when Tim Robbins walked off the set and said, I quit, which most people don't know that story. We were like, Oh, this is not good. This is so not good. Talk about pressure and anxiety. And people are like making phone calls the next day to try to find work. Cause we weren't, he quit. He's like, I'm done. Forget this film. That film almost didn't happen. Right. So for me, because of where I was at in my own evolutionary process, I just fed off of this. You know, there was nothing to me, the more chaotic and the more crazy, the more I gravitated towards it because it was my way of being able to say, oh, I can fix that. I can make that happen. I can. No, no, no. Go on. Bring it on. Bring it on. Like you think, mm -mm, no, 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 no. You know, there were stressful moments in time, but whereas another personality would just crumble and freak out. Right. I was addicted to that kind of of behavior and, and environment. And so for me to be in the entertainment industry made a lot of sense because it's unpredictable all the time. I mean, every second, uh, that, that, you know, I, I, since 1991, I've never, I have not had a traditional job. I can't do it. It's impossible. <laughs> like I can't, I, I, you know, I, I remember one time I, I had a nine to five job while I was trying to you know, do the acting and such. And, and then I ended up getting fired from it and I was upset over the whole situation. And, and um, but when it happened, I remember I had a moment because I hated the job. I've been in for five years and I like I got let go for the, the, the wrong reasons because I was one of the best employees they had. But again, you got to take what happens to you and look at what the lesson is versus combat it. And, you know, even though I was in my 20s at the time and I was combating it uh, and I was upset and frustrated because I couldn't pay rent. I remember I wrote this mantra down for myself because I really hated the job. And so I wrote this mantra about six months afterwards, because that's when I devoted myself to my craft. That's why I'm like, you know what? My one mentor friend said, look, just say to yourself that you're going to pay your rent through acting and you'll be shocked on how quickly you find acting jobs versus staying in the world of fear and security with my nine to five job, which I absolutely hated. So when he said that, I wrote this mantra down, which I live to to this day. And that is, I will no longer wake up at nine to wait for five. Right. That's just not who I am. But now that principle of photography and the pressure that you speak, I mean, we work Monday through Saturday, minimum 12 hours. There was one time I worked 21 hours. I had two hours sleep. And then I had to get up an hour later to start the next day. Right. And Hollywood, our running joke is we don't sweat. We glisten. Right. That's who we are. Right. It's not, it's not, if you're looking for that nine to five job and then you go to see your husband, your wife, and then you kiss your kid, there's a reason why I'm single. There's a reason why I don't have children. Right. Because it just not work for me. So finding the essence of who you are, um, 
your pressure was my, was my crack, you know, that was my alcohol. Now, I think a lot of us, there's a, there's a very, you know, if you're familiar with the Myers-Briggs personality test, there's 16 personalities. I love it. I, all my clients have to take it when I have them on as a client. So as you probably know, there's 16 personalities. I highly recommend people take it. Um, and then each of those personalities makes up a percentage of the world with the most popular being 13.8% and the most rare, which is um, the turbulent advocate, 1.5% guess which one I am. <laughs> so having done that, you know, I, I get myself. So I, I loved it. I loved being there till three in the morning. I love not having, you know, sleeping two, three hours a day. It just, to me, it was a representation of being alive or my definition of being alive at the moment in time. Intriguing that you say that because I recognize myself in that. Uh, around about that time in my life, I was I was I loved emergency surgery. So being the anesthetist on for the emergency theater, being called to ED to the emergency department. Um, that yeah, twenty four hours on, I was buzzing. Great, another Yay. case. Ooh, ah, oh! It was all adrenaline, bam, bam, bang. Absolutely. But my problem was at that time I had never learned to switch off, so I was always switched on. I had I had traits of PTSD that were so hidden yet so plain inside, which made me a great anesthetist. But it gives me great because I had the situational awareness and and stuff like that. But it also meant I was always switched on. And the only way I could switch off was through alcohol. So it was truly playing hard, but also, uh, no, sorry, working hard and truly playing hard in, on the days or hours that I had off. Was that yeah, a temptation no, totally, for you? Yeah, I totally get it. It's, um, I think as we, you know, when you go from your 20s to your 30s to your 40s to your 50s, there's those, those um, pivotal moments, what I call in life coaching that those, there's, there's, you know, you talked about, I wish I would have more time you know, without the change, I think we do get that. You know, I, I started writing down in my journal those significant moments in my life that they it it's just, it, it just merits change. The day you're born, that's a significant right. When you all of a sudden leave your mother's uh, breast, that's a significant. When you go to school for the first time, when you go to elementary, then to middle, and then to high school. When you have your first crush, when you first when you first have. Uh, either make love or have sexual intercourse when you have the person that you love most die unexpectedly when you graduate from college when you decide to get married your first child all these things happen and then when you get to your my one friend says you know the big trigger for her is the zeros I was like the zeros she got every time I have a birthday ends in a zero huge trigger right so the 20 to the 30 to the 40 to the 50 and she just turned 70 she's like i was good at 69 it was no big deal and then the zero came and then all the thoughts i was fine 69 and then the zero came so you know it's um i think we go through shifts um for me it happened around 2010 because i was on this amazing roller coaster that i so adored you know and i uh I was having some difficulties because I was touring with a documentary that I was fairly known for on um, bullying. And uh, I was traveling 
I mean, 10 years in a row, 1 million miles on United Airlines, 1.6 million people trying to save the world, trying to combat bullying into love and understanding and tolerance. And, and then I just wasn't feeling so great. I was like, what is going on? Right. And I would go home after being in, you know, Australia or New Zealand or, or South Dakota. And I'd be talking to thousands of people, you know, I transitioned out of um, the entertainment industry to producing and directing my own film, which got a lot of awards. And then people started wanting me to come speak on it. And that was like 10 years of my life nonstop. Mm. And I, you know, I'm all about asking for help. I'm really good at that. I wasn't, but I learned that lesson. Thank God. So, you know, I went to life coaches and therapists and such. I remember going to this and I wasn't getting the answers I wanted really. I was like, you know, and I went to this one psychiatrist and, you know, I, uh, you know, was having issues with, well, just, not making the best of choices in some areas. Right. And so he said, uh, he said, uh, he goes, I don't think you have, uh, uh, cause I was going to have an addiction to food. Do I have a, you know, all these things. And he said, I don't think you have an addiction. He goes, I think you have depression and you're using that as a tool to cover up the depression. And I, I remember looking at him, I said, well, one you're high. I said, because I dude. I said, I travel all over the world. I'm, you know, at that time I called myself a motivational speaker. And now I call myself a transformational speaker. I said, I talked to thousands of people and I did this big, you know, soliloquy of like, I pump people up and I go to that. I've been to all 50 U.S. states and I've talked to, you know, at least 100,000 people a year and da, da, da. And he just sat there and just sat there. And I'm like, and I did my, and, you know, waiting for the curtain in my Oscar nomination. And he said, well, that's all well and good. He said, but how do you feel when you're home alone? And I was like, and that was huge because that's when I started remembering when I'd go home and I would just cry for no reason. And I couldn't understand what that was. I'd be watching a comedy on TV and I would use that time in between the audiences, right? And I was just like, and I was like, okay, you have my attention. He said, I, go, I think you're suffering from depression. And every time you go out and speak and every time you have a thousand people, I mean, my large house with 10,000 people, that keeps you from dealing with what's happening in between all those, you know, moments in time. So it was just an extraordinary aha moment for me because I really didn't have the ability to be able to sit in my newly diagnosed depression because I was on the road all the time. Right. Uh, it's what, you know, I used to work at the ice house in Pasadena as a young kid and I would, uh, was the uh, box office manager. And it's one of the first comedy stores and comedy places in the United States. Well, these comedians may be funny on stage, but they're some of the most depressing people I've ever talked to in my entire life. Right. That's why they're so funny. Right. They're on stage so that they can feel good about themselves. Right. And, you know, we wonder why, you know, in our industry, especially, I mean, we have tons of people struggling with addiction, alcohol. And I've had a lot of actor friends of mine that have overdosed and died. And, you know, well, they're trying to be something else. Right. They choose a profession where I'm going to be another character for a vast majority of my life. And if you don't have yourself rooted, you know, in the character called Brent, and the character called Stefan and these, those characters, because that's mm. part of who we are, it can be problematic. Oh, it's beautifully said, isn't it? 
And I remember, oh God, goodness, I was I was uh, having done two fellowships. I'm an anesthetist, then I became hyperbaric medicine doctor, then became a pain doctor, then I became all that. So it's all I was putting these kind of acronyms behind my name, working my guts out. And I was thinking I should become an intensive care doctor as well. And one day shift was finished and I put in the morning, came home after a long night work, put in Forrest Gump. And within oh. five minutes, I started crying. Yeah. And I could not stop crying for pretty much the whole film. And then I thought, hmm, I wonder if there is a message there somewhere for me. But it was so bizarre. And I, it is, yeah. What shall I say? Oh, how interesting. So Forrest Gump was actually up against Shawshank Redemption for the Oscars. So I cried for a whole different reason. We didn't get we didn't get the Oscar for us. Got it. <laughs> oh, sorry, I did not mean to rub salt in your wound. No, yet. no, no, it's all good. It's, it's fascinating what you're sharing because the life coach is coming on me. So you know what's what's interesting is you know your your um, somewhat to my point uh, on some levels. Uh, you know, here you are helping with everybody else's pain, but your own. Right? It's like. This is what I do, right? And I'm I'm doing the same thing. I'm yeah. motivating you. I'm transforming you. I have words of wisdom. I'm going to tell you which direction to go, what steps to take, and so on and so forth. But again, that then pointed back to me and what was going on with me. And then, you know, um, that whole well, I, I'm uh, in my in my journey. You know, you've got that concept of you you can't give what you don't have i don't really believe in that to be quite honest with you i think you can but i think you can give more of who you really are once you uh recognize what you need as well right because i was very good at what i did i suspect you were very good as what you did as well but now Hmm. i'm really good like i'm really (laughs) really really good you know because you you actually truly realized who is the real Brand, who you yeah, know, absolutely, that, and that is a skill. But that doesn't come just like that because there is no real brand when you're young. No. You're actually trying to spread your wings as a, as a teenager and in your tweens. You, you try to figure out who actually am I. So there is no one you. You're dabbling a bit in that, and your haircut changes, your your outfit changes. You try that. Uh, that's not really me. And then at some stage, you find something that sort of may or may not work for you for a while, and it's that that kind of of uh, difficulty. So when are you truly the real you? And I must say, for me, at that was late 40s really after my rehab that I actually really started to learn about my own emotions about the the drivers that that were creating these emotions the the conditioning that was underlying all that and it's only now and 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 even today do I really know who I am uh, probably not probably not because well, it's I'm interesting. Just in the journey yeah well, it's interesting what you're saying, because even in my own evolutionary process, you know, I have clients that will call me and say, well, you know, why you want a life coach? Well, I'm just trying to figure out who I am. And I said, well, I said, I don't know if I really can help you. And they're like, well, you're a life coach, aren't you? And I said, yeah, it's, it's more about your question. And they, and they said, what do you mean? I said, well, who are you? And I said, I believe my feelings, you'll never know who you are. But what I can help you figure out is who are you today? Right. Most people are trying to look, 
I always ask my clients, are you a past, present, or future person? If we're mostly in the past, that usually is dominated by depression and sadness. If we're mostly worried about the future, that that's uh, uh, more anxiety. But being in the present moment is where you can experience the joy. I said, so you know, let's just work on who you are today because that's going to be different than tomorrow or six weeks from now. And to your point, who am I really? Well, I would gently suggest to you that as I was, you know, in your alcoholism, that was your real you, right? That was just you at that moment in time. And so, you know, yeah, do we become, is there, it's like my, my, I've I've done so much work on the concept of happiness because like in my thirties, it's like, I just want to be happy and just want to be happy. I just want to be happy and studied, you know, watched all the shows and different things. And now I'm like, yeah, no, I'm so not interested in being happy. I get that it's a choice, (laughs) right. But, and that it's not a destination, right. But again, for me, I think what happens into your point when we're saying, who am I really? As if there's a moment in time where you go, oh, this is who I am. So you're saying that when you were an alcoholic and you were, you know, not making good choices or when you had depression, you that that wasn't who you are, who you were. No, no, that is who you were. Right. Exactly. And you own that so that you because once you own that, then you can become whatever the next version of that is. But without that moment in time, you don't get this moment in time. Absolutely. And that is so important. And that is reflected. That wisdom is reflected in virtually every one of my guests. When I ask them, would you go back in time? If you had a time machine, would you change your story? And the vast, vast, vast majority of them says, no. Because without what happened to me in the past, I would have not been the person who I am now. And I cherish that person. I cherish that the lessons, the hard lessons that I had to learn to become who I am now, to to be able to be the person who can leave a legacy, who actually can give meaning to pain, give meaning to suffering, and being the, 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 the bringer of hope out there. That is why we do what we do, because we have seen the chaos and the, the negative things in our time, and, and now it's time to actually say, yep, that's me but it doesn't define me. So all the scars, mental and physical, they, yeah, that was the past. And without that, I wouldn't be me. But yeah, I'm not just my scars. I'm not just the mess that I was. No, I'm actually the version 2.0, 4.0, wherever you are in your transformational journey. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's, it's um, you know, who am I today? I can't tell you who you're going to be tomorrow because mm. tomorrow hasn't shown up yet. But by working on who we are today, tomorrow is able to happen. Mm. Oh, it's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I can't wait for your book uh, on Shawshank Redemption. And I can't wait yeah. for your book well, right now. Books. What, yeah, I have one book <laughs> called The Red Balloon. We'll, we'll come back on when that, uh, so I have a, Okay, um, you're on. Yeah. <laughs> I have a book that's coming out Mother's Day. It's called The Red Balloon, Inspiring mm. or uh, Transforming Your Life: One Inspirational Story at a Time. Mm. So it's about the de- about the uh, the death of my mom and uh, how she and I proved that there is life after death. And I was fortunate enough to win a contest on the Today Show here in the United States called Everybody Has a Story. So they got a hundred thousand okay. stories, and what they did, which was kind of wonderful, is they asked people to submit stories where they had overcome 
pain or tragedy in their life, right? And how did they get through it? And I was actually waiting for my plane from Atlanta, Georgia to go to LA. So I typed it really fast. I sent it in. And um, what I didn't know is they got 100,000 stories. And what I didn't know is once a week for eight weeks, they were going to pick a winner and fly you out. And what I really didn't know is I'd be winner number eight. And so from that in 2010, uh, really became that pivotal moment of doing what we're doing and talking about now is peeling back more layers of, you know, who am I today? You know, what, what is this all about? And so, yeah, the book is, it's taken me 10 years. It's, it's amazing. We just picked the book cover yesterday after six months of looking at that, but it's a simple life coaching book. Um, it's about the relationship between my mom and I, it talks about what happens life after death. Cause my mother was very big in talking about that. Um, you know, I'm working with a client right now, uh, and I can share because I'm not sharing his name, but his, uh, his mom, unfortunately, committed suicide a couple of years ago. And, you know, I was, as I said, I'm an intuitive life coach and we had a couple of sessions. And for some reason, I asked him and you and I are having a very organic conversation, which I appreciate. And I said, what are some of the top lessons that your mom taught you while she was alive? And so he was, you know, we were doing Zoom and he was telling me what they were. And I said, did your mother ever teach you how to live without her? Oh. And he said, no. Ooh. I said, well, we don't teach that, you know, and my book teaches wow. that because I realized, you know, you know, post my mother's death because she passed in 97 from cancer at the age of 59 and going through my own trauma and loss and yeah. such of that, that, you know, we don't teach that, you know, wow. we, 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 and, and that's what he was struggling with. Right. My mother taught me so many lessons and his mother taught him so many lessons that didn't teach him that. And my mom and what this book is about, wow. you know, is all the various lessons that we learn through, you know, our, our life experience and just poignant stories, very chicken soup for the soul like, but have exercises at the end of each uh, uh, story. So then you can take what you're feeling at that moment in time, process it and then create some action steps necessary in dealing with it. Beautiful, beautiful. Wow. Yeah. Have, you that taught, doesn't... have you taught your sons how to live without you? Wow. No, because that would mean that I have to face my own fear of mortality. That's exactly <laughs> because... that's what my mother was really good at. I mean, you talk to... She was the strangest woman, but I loved her so much. And, we, and people, people gravitated towards... I mean, my mother was a life coach and never got paid. I mean, she really was quite good at that. And that's. I think this book shows that. But, you know, she would... You know, my mother, and I tell so many stories about her, but she, you know, she just looked at she's like, what do you think about dying? I was like, I'm sorry, what? We're, we're eating at McDonald's. What are you talking about? She's like, what do you think about dying? You know, and she would have these amazing conversations with me based on a simple question, you know, and then because she always created a safe space, I could have that. Now, retrospectively at 12, wow. 13, 7, 16, you know, I look at that and what, hence the book, I'm like, oh, she's preparing me. Okay. Got it. Bloody hell. A wise woman. A very, very wise woman. Very. Oh, whew. <laughs> See, <laughs> that is, that you is know a this whole... You this was going to happen, did you? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. 
the the reality is that is that is uh, okay right band uh, here i make the announcement now in official brent will be now a uh, a recurring theme on <laughs> this podcast because there are so many there are so many things that we need to dissect and and certainly for crying out loud i'm 56 um there are days when i walk into the bathroom and switch on the light and think who the fuck are you and because I don't recognize myself, I'm 21 in there. I don't yeah. want to be that body, okay? I don't want to be old. I don't want to have, even think about that the, the possibility that I die. Okay, yeah. yet, yet these fears, I guess they are so natural. They affect all of us. And especially those of us who have gone through so much trauma and so much past, past damage, we are now living our life to the fullest. And... Therefore, to now say, I finally got my shit together, and now I have to die? You're joking. You're kidding me. Absolutely. (laughs) The biggest joke in in, uh, mankind. Yeah. You get to your 50s and 60s, you finally got all the answers, and then you're about to, you know, Uh, transition. You're like, uh, which is why I, you know, my... When I do my life coaching, my niche is millennials, right? Millennials, college students, and high school seniors. That's my niche, right? It's... it's, uh, you know, um, I mean, if you want, you can go to brentscarpo.com and take a look. But I think the reason why I gravitate towards that so much and why I had such a great rapport when I was, you know, I mean, I've spoken to thousands of colleges, but I was like, I think at an unconscious level, though I was doing it, I've been doing it since I was 13. But when I work, like I have three college high school seniors right now. And I say to the parents, I'm, I say to them, you don't, you will never understand for a while the investment that you've made in this child, not in me. You've hired me to be investing your child mm-hmm. that the, the, the benefits that you're going to reap, right? Because most of us wait till our thirties, our forties and fifties before we decide to deal with the trauma of when we are seven or 12 or 15. I said, they're so ahead of the curve. And so now when they get through their 20s and 30s, they may not have as much stuff to deal with, or they have the tools because they invested in themselves at that moment in time to deal with this. So we don't have to, you know, pause our life because we're going through depression or anxiety or PTSD or alcoholism or addiction, or the case may be. So true. So true. Yeah. I mean, that's, a, that's another whole interview that we need to make. Um, because for me, the question is, I mean, if you're talking about uh, millennials, if you're talking about young men and women, we, since when do they listen? They, since when do they want to seek help? That is, that is still quite a, 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 you know, what is that? 1% who are ready for that? Who says, mm-hmm. hey, yeah, I'm 16. Uh, full of testosterone. Um, right. I am full of hormones, and yes, I think I should better get some mental guidance and actually have a life coach. Said no millennial ever. So, uh, how do you do you do you grab those young people? How do you how do you how I mean, do they come in shackles? Do they, do they are they being brought in or how do you lasso them? I um, mean, how does yeah, it work? I, I would say it's a bit, you know, the, at least, I mean, I've seen a major transformation since the time I was in college to now. I mean, yeah. look, when I was in college, we, uh, we had, I went to a private Catholic college and we had one sister 
that was part of that. She was like the, you know, the nurse. That's it. Now, thank goodness, you've got colleges that actually have hospitals on ground and they actually have psychiatrists and psychologists and counselors. And so I think it's more so there um, than we're giving credit to because I've seen the changes and such. But even with the resource there, to your point, you have to admit that you're broken, which is the most difficult thing to do, especially in your 20s and 30s, in order to make the appointment, in order to get onto the yeah. campus uh, deal. Yeah, that's difficult. I would say 50% of my clients that are, um, I get this, like, well, my mom wanted me to call. Or I, I'll get emails saying, my name is, I have a son that's 21, that's 18, that's 25, that's 26. I have a 28-year-old son that's still living with me, and he graduated in college nine years ago. You know, these kinds of things. And so they, they it, it's where the helicopter parent has gotten so sick of seeing their child at 29 eat the food out of the refrigerator and not pay for any of it, that they, they're like, okay, clearly I'm not doing what is, what's necessary. So we're going to hire out and we're going to get somebody. And so... Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Sure. Well, there's no guarantee, but I, I always kept saying that uh, that I would, if I had power to dictate uh, something about education, I would make it mandatory for every 16-year-old to go into rehab for a month. Yeah. Um, and that rehab is really, is that was the best thing that ever happened to me. It was an inpatient program where I was introduced to myself to good habits, to where where people helped me hold a mirror in front of my face and actually showed me who I really was at the time and showed me solutions uh, and, and yeah. ways forward and showed me potential future role models, uh, things like that. So that was the best investment ever of every single cent I earned in my life, that, that 27000 for a month of all paid fun in rehab uh that was the best thing and i would i would i would make that yeah i think whether it be be uh i mean i think there's a lot of different uh ways to do i think um and i'm seeing a little bit of this change and i i go into school systems and i i've been doing some life coaching with seniors who are about to graduate so that's been good nice. uh, i think going to rehab would be good i've often said that uh, I think every high school student on the planet should not graduate unless they've been to a country outside of the United States. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Right. Agreed. Sorry. You get, you have to have, you have to have, you know, a, a GPA of, of 2.5 or higher. You have to do 80 hours of community service during your four years in high school. And you have to visit <laughs> another country outside the United States. That's the <laughs> only way you get a diploma. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love yeah, it. Absolutely. <laughs> says a man who lives in a country where only 15% of the population actually have got a passport to travel overseas. Is that not the yeah, statistic? Yeah. It's, <laughs> so. it's a lot of, well, well, obviously in the last two years, I didn't know that statistic. That's a great statistic. I'm steal. <laughs> I thought so. Um, I need to fact check. Please don't quote me yeah, yet on no, it. No, but no, I'm, I'm pretty certain well, that's around the. It's, the, it's the so thing. interesting. So there are certain things that I, I, you know, and again, I'm I'm like I invented my life coaching program based on all the. So to your point, I'll say to people, you know, congratulations on investing yourself by hiring me. You know, it's the greatest investment you're going to make at whatever age they're at. Um, because it really takes a lot of uh, courage to be able to do that. And I said, I've been doing this since I was 13. Don't ask me why, I just have. So when people hire me, they not only get me, but they get the day I met Mother Teresa. 
They get the day I, I took a workshop with Desmond Tutu. They get the day that I actually sat on the dais with Arun Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi's grandson, because I am constantly doing that. It's just something I have to do, right? Not, but that takes courage. It takes time. It takes money. And a lot of people get so swept into their own daily rut and routine and fears that they don't want to go outside of the paradigm that they have in their brain. And that's so important, isn't it? And it is, yeah. and that's where the goal setting comes in. That's where you, you're, um, where you have got choices to make, and you we keep we keep forgetting that you can, you don't have to make the choices. You get to make the choices. That is the difference. It is a, yeah. it is your it's your possibility to grow. My yeah. wife set me down last. My, my wife set me down last Saturday, and I was busy with other things, and and she said, no, no, come on. Let's sit down. When do you want to retire? And I want to know what will your retirement look like? Because at the moment I'm working stupid hours. Um, yeah. And that's my choice because of COVID. We don't know uncertainty, blah, blah, blah. Sure. So uh, I'm working crazy times and I am heading for burnout big time if I don't uh, really look after myself. So she's, she's made me sit down. How does that look like? You're no longer working as an anesthetist. So now, what are we going to do? And I thought, oh, travel. Where to? And so it was exactly planning out and and going out there thinking, wow, what would I like to do? And when you said, yeah, meeting really beautiful people around the world, that immediately brought me back there because I thought, actually, I want to see that and I want to write a book in Argentine about the Nazis that have fled uh, after the Second World War. And I want to live in that town and I will write about Hitler living there uh, kind of a thing. You know, it's that kind of, yeah, actually, that's what I want to do. And actually, the moment I, I spelled it out like that, I felt a surge of energy flowing through me and I felt this rejuvenation. This, this, I was tired at that moment in time. I had a long, long week. And I was just sort of half grumpy, half, mm, yeah, okay. And then suddenly I felt, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. And it was, it was, oh, it was a great feeling. And that is the, the beautiful thing. So we get to make these choices. We get to do that. You went there already. So you, in your path as a life coach, you are just what? You're, you're a few steps ahead of many of those people who are coming along with you that are seeking your help. But you are modeling it. You're going out there. You're yeah, kicking ass. There are certain things that when, so when someone asks me, you know, I, I have a four-month program. It's 21 sessions. Um, it's uh, sort of, a, I don't say basic, but it's the one that really works. And I've been very specific on the book that I use. And eventually I'll be using my book along with it. Yeah. But, you know, as you well know, you know, it takes 90 days or plus to actually change behavior. Okay. You know, the 30-day thing or, you know, read my book on addiction and you'll be free from alcohol. Really? Uh, it, it ju I just like, I, I literally, every day <laughs> I see the commercial here in the States, I really, I just want to choke this person i get so offended and so freaked out by it but you know it takes that time and investment so there are certain things over the course of my life and then seeing like simple things so like uh, my client you know they'll they'll sign up and say well there's certain things i need you to do while we're doing it. it's like what i need you to make out a will and they're like what i'm only 32 yeah you need to make out a will 
So if you're not willing to make out a will during my life coaching, then I can't take you on as a client. Oh, okay. And to your point, and I just remember this, you also, do you have a passport? No. Yeah, you got to get a passport, but I'm not going anywhere yet. yet. So if you want me to be, Excellent. Uh, I won't. I won't do it. You got, you, you, right? they, they, and there's certain things yeah. that I, I just know. And so when I say this, it's just like their whole brain just goes on fire. It's like, so I have, to, I have to make a will. I have to get a passport. Yeah. Then you have to take a personality test, the Myers-Briggs personality test. We got to see what personality you are. And a lot, fair amount of people have done that. But there are certain just things that I have the list somewhere that they've got to do. And they've never even, especially, I always start with the will, right? Because to me, psychologically, we got to start with their death of who they think they are in order for me to help them to be reborn. <laughs> a phoenix first must burn. Yes, exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly right. right. Okay. No, that's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. But then again, what are you teaching them? You're teaching them to take action. Yes. You're teaching them small steps to actually mm -hmm. move forward. Uh, small, measurable goals that you can do. You can do right now. What do you mean you're still and to listening? Think about things do. That they're not going to think about. Like when I say, okay, well, one of the things you've got to do, if you're not willing to do this, I can't take going as a client, is we need to make out your will. I'm only 27. I don't mm -hmm. care. Exactly. Right? COVID. How many 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40, 50? You know, how many people died? It's over a million just in the United States alone mm -hmm. or under a million. You know, we don't know. I had two friends in the Twin Towers on 9-11. Mm -hmm. they, they didn't know in their 30s that they were going to go that day. I said, so, yeah, we're going we're gonna to make a will. So then, you know, the people that you love don't have to worry about any, you know, whatever wishes you want, right? So I always start them in the end and work our way back. <laughs> beautiful. Absolutely Beautiful. So it's brentscarpo.com. Is that? Yeah, you, you go to uh, brentscarpo.com, B R E N T S C A R P O.com. Um, if you want, and I, I just did this with a young lady from New Zealand yesterday because I did a podcast and she was, it was a live podcast and she, she loved it so much. She emailed me because I talked about something we haven't talked about, you know, here, but we'll do it another time about harmony versus balance in life. And so she gravitated towards that. So, um, I do a complimentary strategic consultation. It's an intuitive reading. Um, you can email me at brent to brentscarpo.com or you can text me uh, at 760-835-3327. That's my cell phone. Yes, I give it out. Um, but just text me first. It's a, it's a California, so get all the codes that you need, probably 01144 and all those things. But if you text me or email saying, hey, I heard you on you know uh, the show and I would love to have a strategic consultation with you and intuitive reading it's, it's completely complimentary guys look down there into the description of the YouTube video and of the podcast you've got it all there ready for you and you would silly not you would be silly not to to take the chance so Brent you were an amazing guest thank you so thank much you. for for just making me think making me reevaluate certain certain things about myself and making me thirsty for transformation for actually reshaping my near future 
because yeah, it is, and that's that's great. Thank you. I'm so 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 excited. And Brent, and it's, I'm, and, and, so I'm really bouncing a bit like Tigger here. So it's, it's, <laughs> you have just reignited the batteries. Thank you so much. Thank you for everything you do. I love the platform. I love this yeah. opportunity. I love the fact that you bring together all you know as many human beings as possible. I'll, I'll leave you with this. I'll leave you with this last bit. Um, it's one of the stories that's in my book. Right. I don't think I've, I've, sh I've rarely shared this, but I think it really speaks to what you're saying and feeling what I'm saying and feeling. And I think a lot of people who might be viewing this. So one of the stories talks about when I was seven years old and I was in Pennsylvania and I looked at my mom. I said, Mom, how many people are in the world? Right. And my poor mother, because I'm the oldest of three children, kind of rolled her eyes and looked at this young child of hers going, oh, God, not again. Right. Because I could tell. And she's like, well, hold on. So, you know, this was pre-Google and pre-computer. So we had to get the Encyclopedia Britannica. Nice, For those of you who are millennials, just Google it. You'll see what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> so it was an actual book that you actually had on a shelf that had whatever it was at that moment in time. And so she took the time which is what you're doing with me now, which I appreciate. And we sat down and we had that mother-son moment. And she said, you know, this is how many people are in the world. And then she went beyond that, which is what you've done with me. And, you know, she said, here's the globe. She got that old metal globe. And she said, this is North America. And we live here in Pennsylvania, but daddy used to live in California, you know, when he left. And then she talked to me about South America and she talked to me about Australia. And, you know, she, I'm sure she talked about New Zealand and Antarctica <laughs> and, you know, all the people in the, in, in and she did this like 10 minute little soliloquy of, of exchange of information. Huh. Finally, she looked at me and I was just like captivated. Right. I never seen the world, the globe. And she said, um, why did you, why did you want to know how many people were in the world? And I looked at her with all the seriousness in my heart. And I said, because I want to meet them all. <sighs> and my mother looked at me and she said, I think you just might. <laughs> and you're on your way to do so and yeah you're, well, you're, and you've allowed me that opportunity to fulfill a a a, a wish to my mother and to uh, that question so i thank you for allowing <laughs> me to be a guest brent scarpo an amazing man and i'm looking forward to our next few interviews that are coming on <laughs> you guys out there I hope you feel as infused as I am. You have good choices to make right now. You can change your life right now. You can get up, have a glass of water, actually rehydrate, stretch yourself, do something for your body. And, you know, it's these are tiny little steps, but these are the steps that set you into action. Because once you're in action, once you start feeling good, you say, Gee, well, that's actually quite nice. So go out there. Guys, I believe in you and look after yourself. Bye.